Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. And this is GM GM from from Decrypt. Okay, Jeff, we got Munib Ali of Stacks, formerly Blockstack. I remember covering that ICO back in the ICO era, the only SEC-friendly token sale, which you know may have slowed things down. But now, fast forward, I think it's more interesting to just focus on Munib has become the guy, arguably, who is trying to promote the idea that Bitcoin isn't just for Bitcoin transactions. It can be a smart contract thing. Oh, totally. Dan, he's also a Bitcoin OG. We've had a few of the, these guests on the show, uh, like Eric Voorhees, and I love talking to these guys because they know the story right from the beginning. And the other cool thing about Manib, too, he put out this big uh, Twitter thread, I think in December, calling out the Bitcoin maxis. I mean, he's Mr. Bitcoin, but you know, he's sort of kind of doing a, you know, hey, let's all come together thing. So can't wait to hear his thoughts on uh, what to do about the maxis over there. Yeah, let's let's definitely dive into that with him. The The culture of crypto is so fascinating to me. I mean, you're right. He's rah-rah Bitcoin, but he's not a Bitcoin maximalist. And I think those people are becoming, even though they're so loud on Twitter, uh, increasingly irrelevant. That'll be fun. Let's ask him about that. Yeah, I'm also going to push him a bit, too, because he's claiming that, you know, Bitcoin can be as versatile as Ethereum and stuff like that. And I don't have the technical chops to really say yes or no, but I do. I am kind of curious how he's going to break that down. Yeah, me too. He's actually a doctor, I think, because of computer okay. science. He's Dr. Muni Bali. But let's bring him on. Here we go. Okay, Munib Ali, GM, welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. And you and I go way back. We've spoken over the years and I've kind of watched your crypto journey. We will get into stacks and we want to kind of hear all about that. But let's start this way. Let's rewind all the way back to, correct me if I'm wrong, 2013 is when you co-founded Blockstack with Ryan Shea. Bring us back to that time. Tell us about what that was and, and your kind of entryway into crypto. I feel like 2013 marks you as an OG nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I think Bitcoin was like, you know, under $100 back then. It will, I'll, I'll stop buying when it will cross 100 because it, it will feel too expensive. But that's that, that's another story. Rewinding all the way back, I think like 2013, this is by the way, like, you know, Ethereum didn't exist. The second largest blockchain was Namecoin, which is a fork of Bitcoin, right? Or, or Litecoin and these these types. Litecoin is still still around in one shape or or, or, or the other and interestingly, I think the way I got introduced uh, with my co-founder was more about, hey, Bitcoin is fascinating. You know, it's an amazing, uh, almost like a uh, money layer. And, but it's also providing this very interesting decentralized infrastructure. So what else can you do with that infrastructure? So when we were like, the crypto industry was pretty small. When we would talk to people, we would be talking about like, hey, what type of applications can you build on it, right? So people would... Um, sometimes classify us as the non-payments use cases of blockchains, right? And now, if you think about it, those those use cases are turning out to be bigger than the actual payments use cases. 
And interestingly, like we were always, we were kind of like Bitcoiners. That's how we started. And we, we were really interested in building things on top of Bitcoin. So that's how we got our hands dirty. Uh, me and Ryan, like we were effectively building like early versions of Bitcoin apps, right? So this is like a about.me type of an application built on top of Bitcoin, right? Or we are thinking of like expanding it to like some sort of a social network like application and so on. And the lessons that we learned in the early days, I think they directly translated into the design of Stacks. So the Stacks project, like even though like we go way back, the Stacks project really came together in 2017, right? So that's that's where the white paper came out. That's when we did our kind of like first token offering, raised some capital to actually build out the network. But the lessons that we learned, like trying to build on Bitcoin directly and, and building different applications and protocols on Bitcoin, they directly translated into the design of Stacks, right? And so yeah. that was like 20, 2017. Uh, Maneeb, uh, hey, it's Jeff. I'd love to jump in. Thanks for joining us. Um, I always find it fun talking to the real Bitcoin OGs. If you're trying to build apps in 2013, what I'd like to hear is when did you first discover Bitcoin? You know, was there sort of a moment that sticks in your mind or how did you first find it? So I've actually searched my emails for the first mention of Bitcoin and like, how did I discover it? Uh, interestingly, this is like around 2011, where Arvind, he's a professor at Princeton. So I was in grad school at Princeton at that time. And Arvind, he's written a book around, uh, on Bitcoin as well. He's still a professor there. He was just joining and he was doing a reading group and he wanted to read the Bitcoin paper. And I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is definitely interesting. And then a bunch of people pinged me about it. Given my knowing me and knowing my interest, a bunch of people were like, why don't you go to this like uh, paper reading? I actually didn't go. This is like one of those misses, right? I think I, I wasted two years of my life by not actually going, going there. And I still have that paper in a folder. Uh, it's called To Read, right? So imagine like sometimes you go back and you're like, only if I would have done this like two years earlier, but still 2013 wasn't, wasn't that late. So 2013 was kind of like really when we started digging in. And this was mostly the New York, I think, crypto community. So my co-founder was pr pretty plugged in. And, and East Village was looking back, like a lot of the crypto companies and founders were hanging out in that very small neighborhood at that time. And we just happened to kind of like be there. One of the Ethereum co-founders was renting an apartment on top of me. Chainlink founder, Sergey was renting out a desk at our co-working space. It's like, um, it's, it's like Ariana from who's now at Andreessen Horowitz. Like she was living kind of like two blocks away. And it was, it was like a very small type of crypto community in, in, in New York, but also in East Village uh, back in the day. Very cool. What street was that on? I, I know the East Village well. So where specifically did you hang out? So I was I was on Seventh uh, Street and First Ave. Nice, right by St. Mark's. Well, that, yeah. it's funny because people refer to Union Square, or at least maybe pre-pandemic they did, as like you know Crypto Alley because that's where all of the crypto companies set up their offices. But it sounds like the real action before that was down the street. <laughs> and I think these days now we're seeing a bunch of that happening in Williamsburg now. Like uh, Ava Labs is there. Uh, Uniswap is there. Uh, consensus is obviously still still there, and so on. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny at Decrypt. We recently ran a, a list of what we think are the top crypto cities, and there's some that you know would have obviously been there ten years ago as well. But then there's some newcomers and you know some rising action. You got Lisbon, you got Miami, but definitely it 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 feels as though San Francisco. It's not it's not necessarily that it's not number one, but a lot of the you know names and builders have shifted away from from Silicon Valley. Yeah. Let's talk about stacks. Let's get into it. You know, I mentioned that there's been many forms. There was Blockstack 
and there was the token sale with the SEC, and now we can just kind of fast forward and, you know, it's it's Stacks, which is simpler branding. How do you explain what Stacks is and does, especially when there's also kind of a, a long-established narrative you're combating, which is Bitcoin is just for buying and holding Bitcoin, and that's all the Bitcoin blockchain can do? Yeah. So I think, as I was saying earlier, that 2017 is when uh, the Stacks project was really coming together. A bunch of the early team members were there and we, we wrote the first white paper and then did the the first offering to really kind of like fund the early R&D and so on. And, and typically, if you if you rewind the clock, a lot of projects were getting funded at that time. Like I think Filecoin did their offering maybe two months before us. And then it was us. And a couple of months later, it was like Definity and others. So a bunch of projects that got their funding in um, 20, 2017, 2018, ended up launching their main nets in like, I would say 2021 or, or late 2020 or so, which, which which kind of makes sense, right? It takes you two to three years to build new blockchains and so on. And, and in our case, we were actually, you know, in some ways it's, it's as hard as it is to build a blockchain, you know, in some ways, it's actually easier to build a new one because you at least control like the entire design and environment of what that blockchain is going to look like. In our case, we were actually fighting a different beast and monster, right? Because we wanted to bring smart contracts to Bitcoin and you can't change Bitcoin. You can't expect even any small amount of changes to Bitcoin, right? And so our design couldn't be dependent on, hey, we are going to build like all of these features in our smart contract layer. So think of that as a programming layer for Bitcoin, which operates like a blockchain, right? Uh, but then we're going to go and try to make these changes to Bitcoin to make our design work because that part is not going to happen. Like no one, no one is changing Bitcoin. Bitcoin is valuable because it's durable and it doesn't change. So for us, like really cracking that problem, that how do you bring new functionality to Bitcoin without ever changing Bitcoin was the what was the key thing. And, and that, that uh, system launched with the mainnet uh, January of last year. So a lot, a lot of hard work, like imagine we had to invent new programming languages, we had to invent new consensus algorithms. And finally, I think it was like, okay, it's here now. And, and, and you're right that, you know, there is this uh, image built up of Bitcoin over the years that Bitcoin is just a store of value. And the reason why people are going and building on Ethereum or now newer, newer blockchains as well, is that they have smart contract f- functionality, like really baked in from the start. And it's, it's very easy for developers uh, to do that, in our case, like you know, it's a two-layer solution, right? So Bitcoin is the money layer, and Stacks is the smart contract layer. And in some ways, like I actually find the separation pretty elegant, right? Because Bitcoin can continue to be money, and you know, no one is trying to change Bitcoin. Whereas, for example, on Ethereum, there is a little bit of a tension between ETH being money or ETH being gas for smart contracts, because th- those two two things, like they uh, they tend to impose different types of design requirements. Like to be a money layer, ETH has to be very stable and not change. And it has to be very predictable that, you know, this is exactly what the supply is going to be. We're not going to mess around with the consensus algorithm. It needs to be almost the opposite of like certain things that a smart contract platform needs. It needs to be more more agile, right? Like you need to be able to make the changes that the developers are asking for and so on. So there's a, there's a little bit of a tension there. So in, in our design, we want Bitcoin to be the elegant, stable, sound money layer. And then the smart contract layer can keep evolving, right? And, and keep evolving independent of Bitcoin. So I think last year, one thing that's been very interesting is the developers are buying it, right? They're building all sorts of things. Like if you look at the 
traction and the just the network usage on stacks like our blockchain is basically running at full capacity right like we are the developers are knocking on on our doors to be like can you can you actually scale more we are having scalability discussions right now uh, Manib, uh, can I jump in for a sec here? Um, just for us non-computer scientists out here, my understanding of it is one reason Ethereum caught on so much is because Solidity was a kind of every man's programming language. You didn't need like to be a veteran, you know, or an elite coder to use it. Whereas the the native programming language of Bitcoin is extraordinarily difficult. I can't program it either, so you know, I can't really tell you. But that's like Dan. That's the sort of impression of the narrative I have. And what you've built at Stacks, I mean, does it abstract away some of that difficulty, or do you still need to be an elite programmer to enter to to use what you're building? Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's a great point, right? So this is let's look at it at a spectrum, right? So on one end of the spectrum is Solidity, uh, which is kind of like a fork of JavaScript, which itself, like you know, a lot of uh, sophisticated engineers would say like JavaScript is like one of the worst languages, but we are stuck with it because it's so popular, right? So Solidity is like like no offense to anyone, even worse than JavaScript, like in terms of its design, but it has the same thing going for itself. Like it was there first. So much of the industry has already kind of like adopted it. So many things are compatible with it. So so people are kind of like stuck with still still using it. And, and, and on the extreme end of it, because it's fully Turing complete, you know, that's where some of the limitations come in and how secure can it be? And, and you know, we see bugs in contracts and all of, all of that stuff. On the other end of the spectrum, Bitcoin script is extremely limited, right? Uh, you can't program much in that. And this is where a lot of Bitcoiners would argue with you, right? They would they would basically be like, no, you can actually have uh, smart contracts on Bitcoin because there is a scripting language or they would have some sort of additions to those scripting languages. These, these things that are, I call them off-chain contracts. They're called like DLCs, where a bunch of logic is off-chain and they're still extremely hard, extremely limited. You can't basically build uh, a good test would be like can you build a uniswap using these systems so the answer is clearly no with bitcoin script and with dlcs and other solutions that in the bitcoin circles sometimes get portrayed as a smart contract solution they're not smart contract solutions in terms of like what smart contracts mean to a modern developer today when a modern developer is thinking about smart contracts he's thinking about languages like solidity where you can build anything, or they're thinking about Rust on Solana, where they can they can build anything. So the approach that we took was we want to be as expressive as possible, so as close to a Solidity or Rust as possible, yet having some baked-in safety features. Right. So our language it's, it's it's called Clarity. It's extremely expressive, like Solidity, but it has certain restrictions that make it easy to actually uh, verify code and have less bugs in code and, and, and things like that. So that's the language choice that we went with. But we completely understand that you know it's important to look into bridges to Ethereum or EVM compatibility because so much of the current industry has already adopted the, the Solidity and EVM there. And you don't you want those people easy pathways to coming coming to the to the Bitcoin side with building Bitcoin smart contracts. Well, and to play off Jeff's question, I mean, does that make it easier for normies to use, or at least people could be hypothetically using apps built on stacks without needing to care, obviously, about the the underlying code? So the users don't care, right? So users don't care what language you used to program your smart contract. Users actually also don't care about the two-layer solution, right? They don't care if you have a separate smart contract layer and a money there. It's all kind of like hidden from them, right? But the developers do care. And in terms of like how easy it is, I would say 
it's kind of like at the same level of Solidity. The difference is that because Solidity has been around for a while, you know, people might find more resources available to them if they, if they want to work in Solidity, but that's changing. Like there's already a book uh, coming out on, on Clarity. There are already like a bunch of developer resources and, and, and the community is picking up. Yeah, Manib, I'd like to follow too with, um, I remember covering the block size wars in Bitcoin. You know, I remember this, it was just bitter in like 2016. These people hated each other. Expand the blocks, no, keep them the same. And, you know, obviously the small blockers won. And I know we now have a bunch of layer two solutions and stuff, but if this catches on, like what you're building, you know, is there a chance that we'll see the same sort of congestion on the Bitcoin network and the same horrible high fees as Ethereum's currently suffering? Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a great point, right? So this is where some of the early lessons came in, right? So the pre the prehistory of the project, like before 2017, when we were just building applications on top of Bitcoin, I think it became like until you really do it, until you actually build something and you see it get traction and you see the potential issues, I don't think it sinks into you like how bad things can be, right? So the some of the apps that we had built in early 2017. To register a $2 domain name, like imagine it's like a, you know, just like we have .eth domain names, we we had, had them on Bitcoin. To register a $2 domain name, people had to pay like 50 bucks in Bitcoin fees. And at one point, we were doing an enormous size of actual total Bitcoin transactions. And the core developer would basically yell at us that, look, you know, we barely have space for doing normal Bitcoin payments transactions. And you guys are flooding the network with these new application use cases. And Bitcoin is completely not designed to do that. Right. So I think this is where that really informed the design of Stacks so that we want to design a system where we can have transactions on the programming layer that are just settling on Bitcoin. So they're not resulting in a lot of traffic on Bitcoin directly. Right, so we can have like thousands of transactions on the stacks there. This is how the system works right now. And they automatically, every block, they automatically settle on Bitcoin. It's a little bit like how Lightning is different. Lightning is more like a peer-to-peer system. It's not a blockchain. But Lightning, when you close a Lightning channel, there's only one settlement on Bitcoin. So whatever people are doing, like there are now NFT marketplaces, stable coins, like all sorts of things on stacks, but they're just automatically settling on Bitcoin with very little information actually going to the Bitcoin blockchain. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I was going to ask about uh, Lightning, but I'm glad you, you brought that up. But considering we're talking about, you know, the block size debate, it's a good good reference from from Jeff, good history there, and, and you know, all the different ways people feel about Bitcoin. Let's get into kind of the, the culture inside crypto, right? Which in many ways we talk about maximalists. We talk about Bitcoin maxis. When we spoke with you at Masari Mainnet last September, you said, Munib, you're not a Bitcoin maximalist. You think of yourself as a Bitcoin centrist. Talk to us a little bit about that and then... You know, right now, it seems like that push and pull is coming back to the fore, especially with Jack Dorsey and, you know, Jack versus the Web3 folks and and Mark Andreessen. <laughs> yeah, so it's very interesting. I actually turned that into a tweet storm 
call basically I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin centrist. And obviously it was triggering for a lot of people. Like a lot of people love it and they support it. And uh, you can imagine the extreme end of the spectrum. People are really hit, hit, hit you for saying these things as well. So it's always, always fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. It's quite interesting to see the reaction there. But interestingly, I think what I've noticed is that there are so many Bitcoiners who are not maximalists, right? But for some reason, actually, I have a theory for what the reason is, that the maximalist voices started getting very loud in the community. And the way they kind of like actively attack things, nobody wants to deal with that. Right. So even if, you know, if you're, you're a Bitcoiner, you're open to like, you know, all sorts of other things and which, by the way, how Bitcoiners used to be for so many years before the maxi narrative really took hold in 2017. It's a little bit like it's annoying for you on a daily basis to trigger these people and then have them yell at you. Right. So, so, so that's why they're a silent majority. Right. They don't, they don't proactively fight back or say anything. Right. Which is now changing. I think there are, there are many people. Uh, for people who are following some of this, like they should go check out what Udi is doing. He's amazing, right? Like he's he comes deep from the ecosystem and he's just calling everybody out and pointing out logical flaws in their thinking, right? Like I think in the long run, it's not going to matter. I think the the maxis, maximus culture that we see right now is a little bit like the autoimmune system that came into action in 2017 for on two regards, right? One was the block size wars where uh, small blockers versus big big blockers and in in trying to justify small blocks i was on the small block side right like i was like you know it from a computer science consensus perspective it does not make sense to basically try to package too much information at the bitcoin base layer right but these people were trying to justify that we don't need big blocks because all these applications are not interesting you don't want these applications right mm. So it turned into a little bit like they're just going to become naysayers. Any new application that comes out, if you if you notice, their first reaction is that this is this is garbage, right? Here are the potential problems. You would only see them like tweeting about when something goes wrong in DeFi. What about the fact like how quickly all of this is growing and you know the growth of stable coins, the, the different financial instruments, same with NFTs, right? They would only talk about like, you know, it's like at what point did you become naysayers, right? Like Bitcoiners used to be the people who were attracted to the Bitcoin experiment because they were attracted to innovation. They were attracted to new types of ideas. Uh, Manib, um, could I just ask quickly, you said earlier, you referred to the silent majority. If I understood right, you mean the silent majority of Bitcoin fans are not hardcore maxis. That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely not. Okay. I think if you, if you take a survey, I think there was a survey that came out of um, Genesis where, or, or I think uh, Grayscale, where they were asking people that if you hold Bitcoin, do you hold other assets? And it was like high 80% of the people, they're saying, yes, I hold Bitcoin, which is my definition of a Bitcoiner. You believe in Bitcoin as a sound money and you hold it and you hold other assets as well. And most of the Bitcoiners are like that, right? Like when yeah. some of the some of the interactions I'm talking about, like these tweets from, I would get so many private messages from people that, hey, I'm so glad that you're publicly talking about this because this is how I feel. But they wouldn't But not, they don't want to say it publicly. They don't want to say it publicly, right? Which is yeah. changing, which is slowly changing. But if, if you look at it, like most of the, the people who own Bitcoin, they also hold, hold other assets. And in a maximalist world, that would not be true. They would only be holding Bitcoin. 
Yeah, hang on, Manip, just quick follow-up. I mean, as reporters, I mean, you know, Dan and I find all this stuff cool. You know, it's just new technology. It's all kind of neat. So, you know, maybe it's naive. I'm like, why can't we all get along? But what's your advice for dealing with the Bitcoin maxis? Because, yes. I mean, frankly, these people are jerks. I just don't think they're helping anyone. By the way, I don't understand trying to dismiss everything that has come since. Like the whole crypto ecosystem. I mean, if you say Bitcoin only, you're ignoring all these other interesting things. Yep. I think basically what has happened is that imagine almost like, you know, if there's a church, right? And the church has a very simple message and the church is trying to create in-groups and out-group people. Like here are the people who are kind of like on the right side of history. Very simple thing. Bitcoin is, is the only kind of like asset that is pure. Everything else out there is garbage. So it, it gives people like a very simple mental model. Right. So that's why you see the following there, because people who cannot like really go and make up their own mind about different projects, it's a very simple black and white type of world, right? Like if you are on the Bitcoin side, you're right. Every everyone else is going to hell, right? So that's the church of Bitcoin. And and interestingly, what started happening is I, I do think like social media platforms like Twitter are to blame for it as well, because they feed on engagement, right? So whenever someone is actually being a jerk online, right? That thing would get a lot of engagement, right? So those voices would actually become, Twitter would like surface that information more and more. And then the, that, that person learns. Interestingly, there are now certain people who are actually not hardcore maximalists in real life, but they act like that on Twitter because they know this is how they get engagement. This is how they get the likes. This is how they they get engagement and their followers and, and they're, they're different people when you talk to them in, in normal life or, or in a yep. private DM and, and so on. So I think what is happening is at some point it became, this is my theory, that at some point it became like the more extreme views you're going to have, the more kind of like people are going to go raw, raw behind it, right? And, and your status gets elevated. So then it became a game of like who's dunking harder on, on some of the more innovative things going on in the industry. And then then sadly, like these some of these accounts are pretty big, right? So they would eat up your 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 Twitter feed and they if they're if they're if they're coming after you, it becomes hard to ignore them. Right. So over time, what I've really noticed is that nothing beats actually building stuff and showing traction. <laughs> like like this is this is at some point what Vitalik did as well. Like you know the, they're the same people who treated him very poorly back then. Yeah. And they still do, right? <laughs> but at, at some point, it doesn't matter, right? Like Ethereum is successful. Like there, it has created so much, so much value. So many developers are are kind of like you know almost discovering the industry through building smart contracts there and so on. And and the best way to handle this is like you push forward and you build, keep building new stuff, and you ignore them, right? Uh, I, I have this joke that in the end, a lot of these maximists are going to live on people's block lists, right? Like that's where they're going to hang out. Right. Never meet your Twitter friends IRL. I mean, because yeah, at some of these crypto conferences, I've met the people behind big crypto influencer accounts. You know, many of them are Anons and they have some NFT as their profile picture. And it's like, oh, you're normal and smart. Why are you such a horrible dick online? Yes. <laughs> and, and that's another thing, right? If you go to normal crypto conferences, like sometimes I'm the only person there, right? Or people from the Stacks ecosystem are the only people there because Bitcoiners do really don't even get invited, right? Like, what are they going to talk about? They're, how 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 long can you discuss the monetary policy of Bitcoin when there are only 21 million Bitcoin and they're never going to change, 
Right. So if you go to a normal crypto conference, they're talking about the new stuff that is being built. They're talking about DAOs. If they're talking about DAOs, someone from our community can have a conversation about Bitcoin DAOs. Like, hey, this is how we're enabling Bitcoin DAOs. When someone is talking about NFTs, we can have a conversation about Bitcoin NFTs. These are the new Bitcoin NFTs that just launched. And here's Bitcoin culture that is being represented as. And so we are still relevant, but the maximalists are not relevant. And then they would have kind of like their own conference where it's like raw, raw, and, do. you know, everybody, yes, do. <laughs> everybody else is not invited, right? Like yeah. it, th- and, those are, and we pretend DeFi doesn't exist and Ethereum doesn't exist. Exactly. And then, and then it's a little bit like, this is where the logical flaws come in, right? So it's the same people who stand for freedom of speech, like they're freedom maximalists, but they're not going to let any idea that they don't agree with even have airtime, right? Even have a, even have a discussion, like even sit down and like, hey, let's discuss no, I don't want to give you voice. Like, okay, sure. Like, you guys should hang out with each other and, and have fun. Since we're talking about Twitter, I'm curious your take on Twitter's crypto strategy in general, especially, you know, you're kind of a Twitter power user. Obviously, the most recent development is these verified NFT PFPs. And it's especially interesting for you, you know, trying to do NFTs on stacks because for now at the outset, Twitter is only supporting NFTs that are on OpenSea and that were minted on Ethereum. But it's not just the NFT stuff, right? I mean, they're experimenting with Bitcoin tipping, but obviously Jack has left the reins there and was the big Bitcoin maxi. So what do you make? What do you think of how Twitter is approaching uh, Web3 and crypto? I, th- I think Twitter is way ahead of the curve, right? If you compare it to Facebook, imagine like what they did. Like they, they didn't think about their core products, that how do we embrace Web3 in their core products? They had like this separate thing that didn't really go anywhere and we are hearing some news that it might might be shutting down and whatnot, right? And I, I think it's a, it's a little bit like if you look at Twitter, it's going after like one small feature that a lot of people actually want. Like I wouldn't be surprised if just the NFT crowd actually becomes like one of the largest revenue sources for Twitter Blue, right? And that's a that's a very interesting move, and they, that's hard data that they can then go back and show to their shareholders and and board members and be like, hey, we want to build more stuff around it because this is this is super interesting. And I do think it becomes a little bit of a bridge to mainstream, where instead of people who love NFTs only hanging out on OpenSea, now you're in a mainstream audience, right? Like you're on Twitter, like there there are like tens of millions of people there. And you can actually play around with these things and they become start to become more normal, like different games will start doing that as well. And I think it, it, it really is a, is a major step, I think. Well, just one more question on Twitter, because I know Dan wants to ask you about NFTs, his passion. But if you were the CEO of Twitter today, what would you do next? What's strategically, where would you take it? So I think one of the, it's, it's a little bit like, it, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but the biggest threat to Twitter, in my view, is the deplatforming stuff, right? It is it, it pops its heads every now and then. People don't take it seriously, right? Until suddenly it becomes serious, right? So the thing that can really, right now, all the crypto community is hanging out on Twitter and all a bunch of other communities are also hanging out on Twitter, but they have they share similar problems, right? If Twitter can't actively progressively work towards like some sort of a decentralization strategy, I think then they're creating this open space for somebody else to come in and, and attack them from that vector. So I, if I was CEO, I would, I would really worry about that. I know Jack has started certain efforts. There's Twitter Blue and, and things, but I'm talking about instead of creating like a smaller 
R&D shop, like at the Twitter corporate level, that no, this is this is a very important thing for us, right? And we need to very seriously look into it. That's a great point about Twitter. I mean, I, I still think that it blows my mind just how much we, and that's journalists, but also we, the crypto community, rely on it, use it every day. And yet the user growth has been pretty slow, I think. I mean, slower than you would think. Like I just, for, for how good the product is, and again, I'm biased. I mean, I use it constantly every minute of the day. I'm just still surprised that it's that it's so much smaller than things like Facebook. But as Jeff alluded to, Muneeb, you know, since we were talking about the Bitcoin maxis and and how much those folks hate certain things, I want to ask you why do people hate NFTs so much? It fascinates me to no end. I mean, the you know, your your theory is that the NFT community will make Twitter Blue a success. I think the same thing. But when that feature was rolled out, you had just as many people, probably more people, or at least as you said earlier, they were just the loudest voices in the room who were angry and hate NFTs. Like, why? Why do they hate them so much? Why is it so triggering for them? Yeah, I think it's one of those things, right? Like where if you want to cherry pick like examples that really look dumb on paper, you'll be like, hey, this guy bought a monkey for like $300,000, like a picture of a monkey. And I have saved it on my desktop, right? So it's it's one of those things where I actually thought that the the way the NFT community responded with memes and really looking some of these arguments really silly that okay, you can right click save, but now try selling, now try selling this or something like that, right? And the response was pretty pretty brilliant. But I think it's one of those things that it's kind of easy to make fun of and dismiss as a as a toy, right? Whereas it's easy to miss the picture of like how like like imagine Bitcoin, as important as it is, is basically basically a fungible asset. And the category of non-fungible assets is much, much bigger because you can define anything. Like right now, sure, it's digital art, but it could be anything. You can you can tokenize, you know, real estate. You can issue like stock certificates, like like very serious type of stuff could also be NFTs. And, you know, they will be NFTs down the road. So the infrastructure that people are building to trading these assets, to actually verifying these assets, to build user communities around it. Like what are what are private clubs, right? Like you get a membership card and gives you exclusive access to something. That's an NFT, right? And you you get that exclusive access both online and offline, right? So you can't make fun of those ideas because those are human behavior that you've observed in real life. And I think those people who are making fun of things, they can't connect the dots clearly that these things are very much ingrained in how our society works already. And this is just unleashing the power of the internet on, on, on top of it, right? Like a part of the, not just the internet, but, but an internet that understands property rights, like where, where you can actually own stuff. Yeah, Maniba, I just want to say I really appreciate your kind of open-minded, like friendly, curious approach to crypto things, because so often on Twitter, it's the opposite. But so on that note, just to wrap up, you know, I confess I, in terms of Bitcoin, I see it as a store of value, but you obviously are making a case there could be much more. So for casual people who want to check out stacks, like what's an application we can sort of like, you know, kind of a, a normie can can check out to learn more about what stacks is all about? I think we've been we've been talking about NFTs. So one would be uh, so they are I think they're in the middle of branding the site, but right now it's only called stxnft.com. A normal person can go there and actually try to check out some Bitcoin art, right? Like there's there are like anything that is culturally significant in Bitcoin, like, you know, a Citadel or Bitcoin pizza or faces of Satoshi and whatnot. Like you can actually find a Bitcoin NFT because the, all these NFTs are getting defined on Bitcoin. And right now it's a little bit an early stage. 
the next step that you'll see will be you could purchase these things just with Bitcoin or Lightning because Stack supports like straight native swaps from Lightning into NFTs, swaps directly from BTC into NFTs, right? So your Bitcoin actually become gets superpower. It's not just for transferring for payments. You can actually do things like put your lock up your Bitcoin into a smart contract or you know, do lending or purchase NFTs. So I think to get a preview, I would say just go check out what, what's there right now. If you're a little bit more on the DeFi side, uh, you could go to Arcadeco. Uh, so arcadeco.finance and uh, that's a stable coin, right? So uh, imagine like how many Bitcoiners would love to not sell their Bitcoin, but just lock it up to mint a stable coin in a decentralized way. This is literally what, what you would be able to do with Arcadeco. And then there's Alex as well, which is a whole... Uh, suite of DeFi protocols that people can go and check out. And I think that's that's where earlier you were asking that how do we change people's minds? We change people's minds by instead of talking about Bitcoin smart contracts, just bringing them to market and growing them, right? Like when these things are actually growing and tons of people are using it, then the question about are Bitcoin smart contracts possible or not possible, they kind of just fade away. Right? There you go. It reminds me of, you know, speaking of being an OG, remember in the early days, all three of us remember the question was always like, well, what's the killer app? When will the killer app come around? And eventually, I think crypto people decided like it's crypto itself and there doesn't need to be just one thing that convinces people that, that this stuff matters. Nice. Muneev, good fun. GM, thanks for joining us. Great chat. And keep in touch with Decrypt. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Always, always fun to catch up with you. Take care. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum, our associate producer is Emma Martins, and our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.